if you're an organized religion and, and your your main platform is that uh, we need to procreate, I mean, logically, you're already standing on shaky ground. Uh, and I think that uh, if, if that's what the if we're talking about threats to humanity, I think that really shows a disconnect. Terrorists are a threat to humanity. Ebola is a threat to humanity. Uh, a couple guys living together who maybe like opera and show tunes, hardly a threat to humanity. And I think that really shows the Catholic Church's um, uh, real disconnect with uh, with the public. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from a somewhat overcast Southern California and expecting a little bit of a shower here in the near future. But um, my co-host Bob Ambrosi is off today and we're going to slug through the program without him. Um, I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. Um, And we'd like to thank our sponsors, which is Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com and PC Law from LexisNexis at pclaw.com slash radio. Well, it's time for some legal trend tracking on Lawyer to Lawyer. What are the latest legal strategies? What's the plan of action for some of the most controversial cases in the country? And what will we continue to see in 2012? And to help us with that, our guest today is a huge legal trend tracker and commentator, on TV, radio, and now on the internet. Attorney Danny Sabellos is the founding partner of Sabellos and Wong LLP in the historic city of Philadelphia. Danny's firm focuses primarily on criminal defense, personal injury, and corporate litigation. Welcome to the show, Danny. Thanks for having me, Craig. Well, social media tends to be uh, one of those kind of legal trends. We're seeing more of it in discovery and uh, use as evidence. What do you see happening there? Well, Craig, uh, what I've been seeing the whole time, what other people call posting on the wall or messaging each other, we lawyers, we call it evidence. And we've seen it over the last few years, and it's only going to increase. And as we use technology and we become more and more integrated with it, uh, Facebook and social media is becoming a part of our life. It's on our phone. And everything you put on that Facebook uh, is pretty clearly going to be evidence. It's a treasure trove. Go ahead. I was just going to interrupt you because it seems to me like I'm on Facebook, but I've privatized everything. I mean, I, no one but my friends can see it. So if that's the case, uh, and I have an expectation of privacy among those friends, how is it that my stuff can be used as evidence? Well, great question, because not everything that you consider private is necessarily privileged. It, there are things that are discoverable that aren't necessarily um what you would normally broadcast to the public. So just because I can't look at your spring break photos uh, doesn't mean that they are immune to a subpoena or or even discovery through deposition. I've seen in discovery uh, asking for people's Facebook password. I have seen people subpoenaing this evidence. And you're seeing it mostly in matrimonial lawyers. Uh, insurance defense firms love to get on Facebook and take a look at uh, personal injury clients because if they're claiming a herniated disc and they show a picture of them doing a keg stand last week, well, then they're going to have a little bit of a, a problem. So insurance defense lawyers, uh, divorce lawyers, 
these are the main areas where we're seeing Facebook evidence coming into play. Now, really? Passwords? Sure. Yeah, well, and then they put the onus on the uh, the attorney to object and then file a motion for a protective order. But really, that communication that you have, uh, if you are uh, sending messages to your uh, your non-spouse, you may feel like that stuff is private, but ultimately, it probably isn't privileged. And most of the public doesn't seem to understand that. Many attorneys can remember a time during a deposition where a deponent will say, uh, well, that's private. And they don't realize that just because it's private doesn't mean they don't have to answer. And they usually do. Well, I would expect that not to have to give up my passwords. How are courts back in the East Coast reacting to that? Well, it's one of those things where, uh, as, as you probably know during a deposition, uh, in, in my personal experience, we object and then someone files a motion for a protective order or they don't, but it hasn't ever come to that. But, uh, but I, in my view, if that's something that someone's seeking to discover, the, there's no reason why it should be privileged. The only thing that you're not entitled to in, in discovery or in a deposition is, uh, is privileged information. And your community, well, when I say your, I mean the royal your, uh, a regular citizen's communication with another citizen, not their attorney, has, has never been privileged, per se. And Facebook should be no different. Well, and there's some other kind of disturbing trends that we're seeing um, beyond Facebook. Um, there's something in Philadelphia called Rec Locals and pictures of or videos of, of kids vandalizing property and then putting it up on YouTube. What's going on with that? Well, actually, I have one of those. Uh, one of those is my client. So I can't talk about that case specifically, but I can tell you this, that in general, that is, a, that is an example of a, of a trend that I'm seeing in, in, throughout the country, throughout the world. Every one of us is walking around now with a video camera in our pocket, uh, usually on our iPhone or whatever other phone that we have. What you're seeing a lot is uh, is people videotaping events and posting them on the Internet for all the world to see. And you're seeing a lot of uh, law enforcement using that to their advantage. And again, uh, whether it's law enforcement or private attorneys in a, in a lawsuit, uh, you can go to YouTube, Facebook, any of these other uh, technological advances. But especially when it comes to YouTube, when people are posting videos or supplying videos to the news, those are not only ultimately used as evidence, but what we're also seeing is that the, 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 virtu- the actual posting of an event that otherwise wouldn't have caught the police's attention now does because, well, here it is on YouTube, and now there's the uh, impetus to investigate. So you have the investigation uh, that begins with the posting uh, of a video on YouTube and ultimately can be the entire case because otherwise uh, it's just a he said, she said, and if no one was there to see it, then... We may never know what happens. Well, and, and uh, I don't know, probably 10 or 15 years ago, my middle son uh, had senior ditch day at our house when my wife and I went away for the weekend. And my neighbor came to me and said, yeah, uh, you know, there was a lot of kids here and, and uh, your son videotaped it in the old days when they had, you know, gigantic video cameras. And uh, we got that videotape and grounded him for it. So I guess this really is a, a trend that's turning to be something that's entirely different than that. But probably much more dangerous. In in the situation, I want to take this question just a step further. Now, there have been a lot of flap over 
people posting pictures of law enforcement uh, beating and arresting other people. And there have been some disputes in the appellate courts about that. Have you seen any kind of resolution on where that issue is going? You know, that's a really hot issue, and I've done a number of uh, segments on that. And what happens, what you're talking about is you see a car stop or another police investigatory stop, and people start videotaping it. And police have arrested those people with their iPhones taking videos of the police encounter. And the basis is usually wiretapping. And uh, in my opinion, I think this is a complete overextension of, of government power. Uh, wiretapping law was originally envisioned to uh, to prevent one party from surreptitiously recording another, audio recording primarily. And uh, there is nothing, uh, the idea behind that is that it's a private uh, encounter, a private phone call usually. There's nothing private about a car stop. There never has been. A, first of all, it's usually on the side of the road in plain view of the entire public. But secondly, nothing about a police encounter should be private. After all, if we had secret police, we'd be living in a different regime. So you're seeing a lot of these arrests, and they often get dismissed. But it's an issue that has to be settled because, first of all, wiretapping law was uh, enacted envisioning the telephone. That's really what we were dealing with when it first came out. But as we move towards each of us having a virtual recording studio in our pocket, and I'm not exaggerating, uh, the, uh, the fact that police may not appreciate being videotaped, I really think it's an uh, unconstitutional extension, but we're seeing it all the time. People are getting arrested, and whether the charges are ultimately dropped or not, uh, everybody knows having a, an arrest mark on your record creates a real problem going forward. But I think that we're seeing this as a real trend and it's a trend that's very problematic because, in my opinion, there is nothing private about a, a car stop, a police stop. And I understand police officers, it's a distraction to have somebody uh, videotaping them. But I don't think wiretapping law is, uh, is the correct use. I don't think that's what uh, the, the government should be using if it doesn't like being videotaped. After all, again, uh, police stops are never private events. They're public events. Yeah. I mean, in, in the instance when you get a stop that's out in the in the public, I don't see any prohibition against videotaping it. I would see a problem if they break down a door and go into a home. I don't think you're, you would be allowed to follow them into the home and videotape what's going on as they, as they progress through a home. That's just too dangerous. Sure. So there's and, a, and there's try, probably a line somewhere. And try, and next time someone gets pulled over and maybe if they've had something to drink, try telling the police officer, hey, it's private between you and me, but I think I had about a fifth of vodka tonight before I drove. Well, that's not yeah, going to be and, private. Right, and turn off that dash cam. Right, exactly. They, they do the same thing. They use videotape on the dash all the time to, uh, to make their case. So there's no reason why it doesn't cut both ways. That's right. Well, there's another trend that we're hearing about in terms of the decriminalization of marijuana. What are you seeing there? Well, uh, Philadelphia is a terrific example. We have a relatively new district attorney, Seth Williams, very progressive, uh, tough on crime, but really a very smart district attorney. And uh, he's really come up with some uh, progressive moves, very forward thinking. And uh, I wouldn't say, I don't think he would say that he's decriminalized marijuana, but he's offered diversionary programs. And, and for those listening, a diversionary program is usually, a, it's often considered a one bite of the apple. That's my word for it. I mean, that's my phrase. If uh, you see it a lot in DUIs, many states have a, an arrangement where if it's your first time, you enter a program, you pay a fine, and ultimately you may be able to get your record expunged. And we're seeing diversionary programs for marijuana, which is not an explicit decriminalization of, uh, of marijuana, uh, but it's a step. And I think the trend that I'm seeing is that marijuana is fast becoming uh, legalized. Uh, it, it's, it's, we're moving towards maybe in the next couple of years, 
seeing uh, half, if not more, states moving towards uh, legalization of marijuana. It'll start with medical, and ultimately, uh, the trend is going to be, I think, in in a few years, we're going to say, remember when marijuana was illegal, the same way we're starting to say, do you remember smoking in in, uh, in restaurants, or do you remember the Macarena, or do you remember MySpace? I mean, the kind of things that a few years ago seemed like distant memories, uh, I think marijuana is going to be one of those, and it's a long time coming. Well, and we've also looked at uh, gay marriage uh, as a trend, and it's occurring in the courts. We're seeing more legislatures pass laws that say that gay marriage is legal. And, you know, with the federal comedy requirements, we're seeing other states having to respect those gay marriages. What do you what do you see in this trend? Oh, well, this there are a number. There are many trends within this trend. I mean, as we as we all know, gay marriage is probably one of the fastest uh, uh, legal points fastest moving legal points in the in recent history uh, it's moved towards legalization uh with a speed that that the marijuana proponents could only be jealous of and i think especially this year you're going to see a bit of uh, a bit of a blend in the trends you're going to see uh, uh president obama who i believe has no problem with same sex marriage but he's coming up on an election year so while we're seeing a trend of gay marriage being legalized Politically, you may see the administration take a very wide stance or a very neutral stance on gay marriage. In just the last week, a lot of hot issues with this, uh, with this issue. First is uh, Rick Santorum's comments recently, Monday, I believe, uh, saying that President Obama shares his views. And President Obama realizes politically that while his administration is probably going to oversee, especially if he sticks around for another term, we're going to see gay marriage move towards legalization. At least during an election year, I think he's going to uh, stay hands off. So even though the trend is moving towards legalization of gay marriage, the administration probably won't say that, at least for the next year. The other thing you have is, is as the trend for gay marriage moves in the up direction, uh, once again, organized religion seems to want to shoot itself in the foot uh, with this issue, uh, it, it may be the case that the Pope uh, in the last couple of days called uh, gay marriage a threat to humanity. And that's exactly the kind of rhetoric that really doesn't do too well for organized uh, religion, uh, which is too bad because this is a tremendous opportunity for them uh, to gain uh, gain follow or regain followers that uh, organized religion may have lost, specifically uh, the Catholic Church with several billion followers uh, worldwide. And, well, and uh, with, the, with the whole aspect of, you know, 7 billion people in the world, um, the concern about procreation is pretty much out the window. Right, exactly. I mean, if you're an organized religion and, and your, your main platform is that uh, we need to procreate, I mean, logically, you're already standing on shaky ground. Uh, and I think that uh, if, if that's what the if we're talking about threats to humanity, I think that really shows a disconnect. Terrorists are a threat to humanity. Ebola is a threat to humanity. Uh, a couple guys living together who may be like opera and show tunes, hardly a threat to humanity. And I think that really shows the Catholic Church's um, uh, real disconnect with uh, with the public. And uh, and it's really a shame because it's always it's an opportunity. To, to gain followers, regain followers. Uh, many people have stopped going to church, and I think that would have been politically an opportunity. So gay marriage, a very hot trend right now, moving definitely in the up direction, but as it does so, some other uh, entities, politicians, uh, may be trending downward as a result in their reaction to it. And one of the other trends that uh, we're beginning to see is uh, law school students graduating from law school, rather, it's nothing new, but what about their employment prospects? 
Well, the the trend is pretty clear. If you're in law school, uh, it, it's, uh, it, it seems very abysmal. I'll start with that, but then I have some good news. I mean, frankly, when I graduated law school in 2000, I challenge anyone to prove to me that I didn't graduate at the luckiest time to graduate in history. I think they were literally throwing uh, jobs off the back of hay trucks to most law school graduates. It was a, it was a a golden era of getting a job, and things have changed markedly in just a decade, shockingly. And that was the dot-com boom, and now we are in a serious recession. So uh, many law students are now graduating with very grim job prospects. Now, that's the bad news. Here's what I think is the good news. Uh, as a professor here in, uh, at uh, Drexel University, I get to, the opportunity to speak to a lot of law students. I, I teach in the School of Nursing, but I do interact with a lot of law students here. And while the job prospects are grim, and I think morale is at an all-time low, I'm talking to people who have, uh, who are hungry, who are, uh, who serious, and I say hungry in a complimentary way. I mean, they're going, they are, they're creative, they're innovative, and a lot of them are graduating and getting non-legal jobs. Now, does that mean, uh, you know, the era of people getting large firm jobs at places like Skadden or somewhere else, where they pay, you know, upwards nearly 200000 a year now to, to start, uh, does that mean that, that they're going to get jobs like that starting out? No, probably not. But for many of them, uh, those are jobs that, as you know, people spend a few years in and then they move on and then they have to restart their life maybe five years into their career. And we're seeing law students who are graduating who have had to really scrap and come up with a career plan. And I think in many ways that puts them ahead of the curve. It certainly puts them ahead of the, uh, the curve of many of my colleagues when they graduated law school. So I think that this is uh, there. There is some silver lining in this uh, in this thundercloud. Uh, law students certainly the morale is low, but they are creative. No longer does the valedictorian assume that they have the job of their choice, and as a result, they're getting creative. There, some of them are, or more of them are, opening their own uh, office or hanging their shingle, as it's commonly said. And I think that uh, that makes uh, uh, you know, uh, small firm owners like myself uh, wonder. We're going to have a huge crop of, uh, of uh, very creative, very driven, very uh, innovative and technologically advanced uh, lawyers coming out into the industry, uh, hanging out their own shingle and opening up for business. And they are going to be hungry. I think uh, morale may be at an all-time low right now, but I think in a way uh, they may be better off long-term for it. Well, I have a couple of follow-up questions for that, but it's time for us to take a quick break, and we'll be right back after this message. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the benefits of cloud computing. Now, what do you think the single biggest benefit to cloud computing is? In talking to our customers recently uh, about that very question, I was surprised with what came back with as, as a really resounding response, and, and that was that it's the convenience and the freedom that cloud computing affords them. The ability to get their work done from anywhere, whether it's at their office, at the courthouse, at home, or even if they're on vacation, they're able to get their work done where and when they need to get it done. Uh, the mobile aspect of things is also increasingly important. Well, with cloud-based software, you can access your data and software from your iPhone or your iPad, uh, your BlackBerry, uh, and other mobile devices. So for the uh, lawyers that are on the move, which is an increasing uh, proportion of lawyers, that's a, a really key benefit as well. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if anyone wants additional information on Clio, they can feel free to visit www.goclio.com. 
That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Tired of all the headaches of running your law firm? Want to spend your time doing what really matters? Then you need PC Law. PC Law from LexisNexis is the legal industry's best-selling matter, billing, and accounting software. It has never been easier to manage your law firm and serve your clients. Get back to doing what matters to you. For a free trial, go to PCLaw.com slash radio. That's PCLaw.com slash radio. Or call us at 800-685-2161 today. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. My co-host Bob Ambrosi is off today. We're joined by attorney Danny Savalas. He is the founding partner of Savalas & Wong. And let's get back to what's trending in the legal industry. We were talking before the break about law school graduations and students uh, opening up their own individual solo practice law firms, hanging out their shingle, as Danny said. Now, Danny, there have been some development in virtual law firms. There are a couple of law firms that I know of. I think Axiom is one of them that has um, basically just lawyers from all over the country who have agreed to work together and uh, they're doing so virtually. What do you see trending there? Oh, you're seeing the trend that, again, it, it, and, and underpinning all of this is always technology. It's the Internet. But uh, it's the uh, advent of the Internet has caused all of us lawyers to take a look at our overhead, take a real look at it, and say, and, and discard the traditional model of a bricks-and-mortar uh, office and say, well, what do we really need? And you're seeing a trend of uh, people using uh, uh, virtual uh, conference rooms. Um, used to be meeting in Starbucks. Now people are, or lawyers are going in on what's called, um, they're, they're sharing conference rooms. They're entire offices, office suites that offer shared conference room. You call ahead and you, uh, you get a conference room time. You can meet with your client there. People are, lawyers are finding creative ways to minimize, uh, their, their overhead and the internet is the next trend. And people are moving as much as they can uh, virtually online and conducting meetings, meeting with clients, and uh, and really becoming a virtual law firm. I mean, a, a law firm that almost exists in the matrix. And that's a trend that we're seeing. And it's only going to increase. And, and sooner or later, people's entire file system will be available uh, very easily on their smartphone. We're already moving towards that. So the virtual law office was something that was thrown about as a term several years ago, but it's becoming a reality. We really are moving towards the virtual singularity, as it's commonly called, and that's all because of technology. And again, what it does is it allows uh, uh, previous, previously a lawyer might even have to rent or purchase his own law library. That's a thing of the past. I mean, Lexis and Westlaw and all the other search engines and even Google 
make that a uh, a thing of history. And yeah, if you look back at some of the old prices, just for a law library, for example, if you wanted to hang out your own shingle, and I used to run. I, I used to read quotes of ten thousand a year for a for a law library. Those days are over. And uh, as people move towards virtual law offices, we're going to see a real trend uh, towards a, uh, a man being a law firm all all unto himself and people linking together primarily on the Internet, maybe with people that they haven't even met in person yet. <laughs> right. Yeah, I have worked with a lot of clients myself that I've never met. Well, let's look at um, technology and how it's affecting the way that employers and overtime pays being calculated and lawsuits. What's happening in this area? Oh, this is a really hot trend. Uh, this is a really big thing. The FLSA, as you know, requires generally, with lots of exceptions, that if you are a, uh, a non-exempt employee and you work 40 hours in a week, if you're an hourly employee, you work 40 hours a week, if you go over, you're entitled to overtime, which is usually time plus a half, 1.5 hours. Now, in the old days, that was a pretty easy thing to calculate. Somebody drives to work, they've got their hard hat, they walk into the office, they punch the clock, and at the end of the uh, end of the night, they punch the clock again and they leave. And there really was no question historically how long you were at work. It was pretty clear. But as you know, technology again has made this a little more complicated than before. And uh, some of the uh, some of the examples are police officers, uh, police officers who uh, are given blackberries or have blackberries. A law enforcement officer is is at home. Uh, they get an email or a text from one of their um, one of their superiors, and you have to ask the question, well, if they're, they're working shifts or they're working hourly uh, and they're answering Blackberries or answering emails uh, at home, then should they be paid? Should they not? And I think that as we move towards creative and innovative uh, uh, company structures, and it's not, just, it's not just police officers, obviously, every kind of job is moving away from the traditional come to the office, nine to five, punch out and leave. And while that happens, uh, now we're going to have to reevaluate who's going to be entitled to overtime. And there are a lot of companies out there that are choosing to classi or classify or misclassify employees as uh, employees that are not entitled to overtime when, in fact, they are. So the, one of the hottest trends here in the FLSA is these overtime cases where people are where companies are failing to pay their their employees uh, their overtime to which they're entitled. And sometimes it's a non-traditional job. Uh, that may not have existed 20, 30 years ago, but other times it's a, tr it's a traditional job, but that employee is required to be essentially on the clock while at home, answering their phone, uh, responding to emails on their BlackBerry or on their laptop. And I think that uh, the trend that we're seeing, and I think everybody would agree that nobody seems to leave the office at the office anymore. We all have our laptop open while we're maybe watching TV, catching up on on uh, Dancing with the Stars or whatever in the evening, but uh, we're checking our email 24 hours a day, we're responding to text messages, and we're even picking up that cell phone well after hours. So the question's going to be uh, when companies are going to realize that their employees are entitled to overtime. And it's not just a case, you can't get away with just uh, giving someone a title and saying that's traditionally a, a job that isn't entitled to overtime. The question really is, are they working or are they not? And if they are, uh, under the FLSA, they may be entitled to overtime. It seems to me to be a pretty straightforward question. I would seem that I would think that when you're responding to emails after hours, you're working. Yeah, it would seem that way. You know, the overtime laws is an interesting issue because a lot of people, uh, they're good workers. 
they uh, their employer asked them to do something, and and they got that job by being go getters. So when they're asked to do something, they do it. And uh, and a lot of people are probably having their FLSA rights violated, and don't even think of it because they think, well, hey, the boss contacted me at eight o'clock at night after dinner. I'll just send him an email because look, I want to impress him. I want to do a good job, and I want to keep my job. So uh, I think we're seeing, and I think we're going to see a real trend, a real spike in overtime cases as more and more people become aware of the law, aware of the FLSA, and say to themselves, hey, I might be one of those people that's entitled to overtime pay, uh, because it's certainly not something that the employer is going to broadcast. And a lot of these employers aren't doing it intentionally. It's part of the new paradigm. People don't put on the hard hat and and punch the clock the way that we did in the old days. Some people don't even go to an actual office. Uh, some people work, many, many, many people work from home now, something that was just a dream uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And because of that, our, our, the, the definition of what is work and when someone is working is blurred. But it's incumbent upon employers to be mindful of that. It's their obligation to comply with the FLSA and not their employee. So employers need to be mindful of that. And until they do, we're going to see a real trend and I think a huge spike in overtime cases as people realize that their FLSA rights may have been compromised. Well, certainly it'll be an interesting lawsuit when it finally hits, because I don't know how courts can get around the fact that, you know, people are working. I would think that employers would have to instruct their employees to stop uh, responding to emails after work, and and I'm not even sure that that would accomplish it, but maybe they just have to start, turn off their emails after work. Who knows? Right, right. Well, be yeah. an interesting or reclassify them. I mean, or or pay them what they're entitled to, because it's just not realistic. If if you're an ambitious go-getter, you're an employee who's worked hard for the company, it's not realistic to say to an employee, listen, I may be frantically emailing you with that little red exclamation point uh, at 9.30 at night, but whatever you do, don't respond, because I don't want to pay you overtime. I think more re- we need to be realistic, and, and employers just need to realize, look, if we're going to have our employees work uh, around the clock, we should pay them around the clock. Yeah, it's, uh, and we've definitely got some examples in that. I mean, you know, we've got the waiting time cases. We've got the people that are on call. So this is not much of a stretch. Sure, we have donning and doffing. I mean, the time that you're at the, at the firm, maybe putting on a uniform. I mean, there, there are many, many different uh, FLSA issues. And a lot of them have to be resolved through litigation because the law couldn't possibly cover every factual scenario. But, uh, but again, I mean, if... If you have an employee and they're entitled to overtime, uh, it's the employer's obligation to pay them that overtime. Well, Danny, we've just about reached the end of our program. It's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts as well as your contact information. So if you could please um, give us kind of a summary of where you see these trends and maybe kind of generalize where where you see them coming and where you see them going. Well, what I see is this. I think underpinning uh, the, the common thread that we see through all these trends is technology. First, technology plays in almost every trend that we've talked about today. We're moving. uh, Everything is accelerating. And I don't mean geometrically. I mean exponentially. Things are moving faster and faster. It's hard to even keep pace. My iPad today will be obsolete in a year. I know it. Uh, As a result, everything's accelerating. And ironically, uh, the the other side of that is that technology was supposed to make our lives uh, uh, simpler. And uh, I think, ironically, in many cases, technology is speeding everything up, and a lot of us are working more than we ever thought. But uh, at the end of the day, these trends, I think there are many of them that are positive, and I think uh, uh, we have a lot of exciting things to look forward to, both legally and, uh, and overall. And you wanted my contact information. Please. Yes. Uh, uh, Danny Savalas, that's C-E-V-A-L-L-O-S, 
at Savalas and Wong LLP. Uh, my email is Danny, D-A-N-N-Y, at Savalas Wong, C-E, V as in Victor, A-L-L-O-S, Wong, W-O-N-G. Dot com? Dot com. That's right. Thank you. Very good. Well, one of the things that, you know, you mentioned technology, and I'll just wrap up with, with kind of my final thought about this. I read an article that there have been some researchers who have been able to make uh, a wire transmit electricity that is merely one atom wide. And to me, that means that technology is going to shrink and it's going to shrink fast and it's going to shrink to an unbelievable level that we could, you know, theoretically have computers that will fit on our fingertips. And uh, when that occurs, I cannot imagine the level of uh, computing capability that will exist, the speed of computers and the size of computers. I think we're going to see computers even morph into something entirely different than they are right now. I couldn't agree with you more. I can't. I, I don't even know that we can imagine what's uh, even in the next five years. Like I said, everything's accelerating, getting faster and faster. Things are shrinking, uh, and uh, and I think our traditional view of even a laptop computer could change in just the next few years. Well, it's changing now. They're they're putting out ultra books at the Consumer Electronics Show that are smaller and faster and. Uh, lighter than and bat- longer battery life. So you can see you, your predictions already coming true. Well, Danny, thanks very much for being on the program today. We're going to wrap up and uh, and uh, finish up the show here. We want to remind our listeners that we can that they can now get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to legaltalknetwork.com and click on the West Legal Ed Center. And all of our shows are available on iTunes from the Legal Talk Network. And we'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.